Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So if you're in need of inspiration, and let's face it, who isn't, then ruler issue 113 could be your answer. The inspiration issue includes interviews with two of the breakout stars of 2022, Jai Hindley and Lorena Wiebus, plus articles on Mont Ventoux and motherhood, and a look back to the remarkable summer of 2012, 10 years since Bradley Wiggins drew the raffle numbers on the Champs-Élysées. Go to ruler.cc and subscribe to the magazine now. I'm joined by Ruler editor Ed Pickering and from Paris by Ruler's James Start. Um, Ed, I've given us sort of a flavour there of what's in 113, but tell us a bit more. Yeah, so it's, it's a funny one, really, that yeah, we've called it the inspiration issue and we're conscious that actually every edition of every bike magazine I've ever read has been inspirational in some way. This is a cycling's an inspirational sport. On that level, what makes it different from others? But I want what I wanted to kind of draw people's attention to is not just the inspiring stories that we cover in, in this inspiring sport, but also to kind of be, be be conscious about not just getting inspired but you know looking for inspiration as well some some as, as i've said in my editorial you know sometimes inspiration does strike us out of a blue sky and it can be surprising and delightful but sometimes we have to go looking for it and that's what we've tried to provoke people to do with this issue of the mag you know we'll, uh, we'll talk about this in a very very short while but we wanted to talk about not just inspiring people like jai hindley and lorena weavers who we've interviewed in this mag but kind of the, the the places that inspire us in cycling like the cycling like no other sport inspires us to travel learn and go places so we've we've covered that angle as well so be inspired by this magazine be inspired by every every cycling magazine and every edition of Rouleau but this one kind of is, is is more self-conscious about it the interview with Jai Hindley is really interesting isn't it because he 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 comes across not as a typical Grand Tour winner no and it's it's funny that we're we're talking about this just after couple of weeks on from the Tour de France now for the men the men's Tour de France and I was talking during that race you know in my in my pieces for the Rouleau website and on the podcast about Jonas Vingegaard's kind of I think everyone's finding it difficult to find his what his charisma is and understand what his tour winning charisma is he won the Tour de France very well but no one can really pin down like somebody even asked him in the press conference the winner's press conference like what do you do what do you like and I get the same from Jai Hindley. I don't know whether there's something in in the water in 2022, but our Grand Tour winners have been not exactly cut from the same cloth as some of the others. And when you think of 
kind of iconic tour tour and Giro and Vuelta winners of the past. They they kind of some of them are very temperamental or have a big personality or very dominant. And Jai Hindley's not like that. He really he comes across, and I think he really is a very laid back friendly, happy-go-lucky, well-balanced individual. And that's what's come across in the interview. He, you know, Isabel Best went up to Andorra to meet him there. He's on a mini-altitude camp and just, you know, had a, had a good chat with him, spent a good bit of time with him. And I got the impression that she felt the same. That really comes through in the interview, that he's he's just pretty laid back and normal. And he's a normal guy doing extraordinary things. And to me, that's inspirational because you know, isn't that, all of us james it is a uh, it's a different generation isn't it it's a very a markedly different generation now their age these guys are winning major races at a young younger age and consistently than we've seen in the past so even you know pogacar is in the same uh category really because he's he's still wearing the white white jersey for best young rider you know with the tour de france but he's still best young rider and they haven't maybe experienced as much stuff and and so i there's a certain innocence with this generation and we'll just see it, but we'll see where it goes because winning and staying on top of the biggest bike races can be transformative in itself. We'll see how they develop. I remember, you know, Laurent Jalabert back in the nineties was a pretty ordinary guy. You know, he came from a small town in the South of France would probably worked in the shoe industry that was popular down there. And then, you know, all of a sudden he became the world's number one ranked rider for three years running, won the Vuelta, you know, people criticize him and he had to stand up for himself and sometimes uh, speak out. And, you know, and he became a bigger than life uh, champion because of the races he won. So we'll see where this, uh, we'll see where the, the path of life takes, takes these guys. There's, there's a couple more things I'd like to say about Jai Hindley particularly. Um, first that, yeah, I said this at the time, but I, th- I thought the way he won the Giro was in, you know the the adjective that keep kept coming to my mind was imperious. He just looked confident, in control, and this is a guy who came off the back of a really tricky year in 2021. He had his breakout Giro, almost won it, came second in 2020, and then didn't at all perform in 2021. Yet still rode as if there were no pre- there was no pressure at all. I think he put some a bit of pressure on himself, but he didn't look. He wasn't kind of exhibiting any signs that he rode under the pressure. Just, just looked brilliant. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing. You know, we we had a Tade Pogacar problem in cycling up to this year, in that we, no one could work out how how he gets beaten. Now we've got a Jonas Vingegaard problem that we don't see how he gets beaten. But I'm I am looking generally looking forward to seeing how Hindley performs because he's not won the Tour de France. He's not dominated the Tour de France like both Vingegaard and Pogacar have in the past. But he rode that Giro as if he, you know, in the same way. And up against Vingegaard and Pogacar, I, I, I don't think he'll be scared. I, I think he'll give a very good account of himself when he when he goes up against them in good form. And the second thing is, something that, again, he's provoked in me, is a reflection that, you know, after 2020, we, you know, there was a lot of pressure on Hindley to perform. But, you know, he, he had come second in the Giro, and that's, that's an incredible result. And... You know, why should we expect him to immediately follow up on that? You know, everyone, every bike race is trying to win the race. Not every bike racer can win the race. And in his case, in the next year, he, he, he couldn't. And this, this year he did. And I wonder if there's going to be expectation on him to, you know, repeat 
or to do better or, or you know people saying well he has won the Giro but you know will he will he ever win the Tour de France so like in some ways yeah that's that's going to be interesting to find out on the other it doesn't really matter he did win that Giro he'll never have that taken away from him and you know he looked brilliant doing it so that's that's my kind of also my takeaway is that he did an amazing amazing achievement in in winning that Giro and whether he follows up on that or not who knows that's that's to be seen and Lorena Wiebes um, comes across uh, really uh, intriguingly in the article um, as well in 113. I mean, effectively almost unbeatable if she um, gets to the sprint with clear air in front of her. Yeah, I mean, and Andy McGrath, our, our, our old editor, interviewed Lorena Wiebes at the Tour of Britain. So, we, you know, that was before she'd even easily won two stages of the Tour de France fam. Uh, later which just kind of cemented her dominance but yeah her her she is she is the best sprinter in the world in in women's cycling without a question there's given a clear run at the line no one can touch her even when there's not a clear run at the line I, I, you know she's still just clearly so much better than the others that it's you know we, we really need need to wait for the others to kind of either raise their game make some improvements and work out how she can be beaten or for somebody younger and better to come along, which which will happen. I mean, it, it 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 always happens in cycling. And you know, the other news with her is she's just announced that she'll be moving to SD Works in 2023, which isn't going to make it any easier for her rivals to to work out how she can be beaten. Uh, James, you've uh, got um, several pieces in this edition. Let's start with um, the one on Mont Ventoux, not in the Tour de France this year. Uh, but always one of the iconic climbs of cycling. What does Vontu mean to you? Well, a lot of things, but certainly uh, inspiration. I mean, when we came up with the the theme for this issue, uh, we're throwing our names of riders and stuff, and and then I started thinking, well, you know, there's climbs inspire too, and landscape inspires us, as you said. You know, takes cycling takes us to these amazing places, and for me, the Vontu has just always been a very singular an inspiring place. Um, it was the first climb I ever, first real climb I ever did, I believe, because I had friends that actually lived at Malosen. So on the north side, when you come down off of it, uh, if you go up traditionally the Bedouin side, it was like the first climb I ever did. And, and it's just, it's so unique. There's no ski resort up at the top. It's just the site, you, a cyclist and nature in this amazing mountain. And you come out of the trees and you see that, I think it was a, was it a weather station or radio tower? I forget anymore. Um, you know, peeking out and you're kind of, you're, and you still got six kilometers and the wind is whipping around depending on which, you know, which turn you take. It's, it's just, it's just a totally singular uh, climb. It's a it's singular experience every time I climb it. Every time I cover a race going up, it's, it's unique and special. So I wanted to do it um, on her. And I tried my best. It's one climb I've never done, largely because whenever I look at it, it just looks so horrible. It it just doesn't, you know, to a non-climber like me, it doesn't um, hold any appeal at all. It's a funny one, Von too, because it, I, I I have climbed it um, only only the once. I, I I climbed it in a in a car on on Bastille Day when the Tour de France was there as well, and that's I'd I'd say that's possibly. An even more stressful and difficult experience than cycling up, but it, it's a funny climb because, you know, really every climb in the world is a simple equation of putting watts through through the pedals for a certain amount of time. That that 
the von two should be no different. It's you know it is x number of kilometers in length, uh, x percent gradient, and you can put x amount of watts through the pedal. You know, with, with in my case, not very many, but you know, as a if you if you break it down to the physical challenge, then it's no different from any other climb. Yet, as James correctly puts his finger on, it's there's something about it. It's got an atmosphere. It's got a reputation. It's got a presence. All those things feed into the experience of riding up it. So when I'm riding up it, when you go up through that forest, there's I've I've read before that it, it feels airless and there's no air to breathe, and it's true. It feels stifling and heavy and oppressive, and then you get to that very distinct point at it's Chalet Renard, isn't it, where the tree line, you know, the trees stop and you're on the bare scree slopes, and becomes a totally different challenge where it's not oppressive it's if it's the opposite it's kind of makes you feel agoraphobic because there's so much space around there's no other mountains there's just there's no trees it's just rocks and the and you know where the top is because it's marked out clearly and psychologically it's a totally different challenge from riding up the trees where you think it's never going to end above the tree line you you still kind of think it's never never going to end but you, you know the, the the finish is inching towards you painfully slowly so all those things feed into your psychology and your experience of climbing it and that that's what makes it special it's 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 unique a unique climb i i could tell you i need to put x number of watts out for x number of minutes when i'm riding up it but that that doesn't even that's that's about five percent of the actual experience and psychological experience of of riding up it yeah it is simply and physically like what you said about you know okay it's a there's a mathematical equation altitude gain watts percentage and all that but it is simply unrelenting. I think there is one hairpin turn, you know, and on the, on the Alpe d'Huez, for example, there's what, 21 of them, right? And the hairpins kind of level off and you can throw it in a bigger gear and, and, re-gets, and regain some momentum. It's just this steady, unrelenting slog, especially down in the trees. It's one of the, I always say, I go, whenever I do something like climb the Ventura, I get the, my sciatica returns because I'm doing something so stupid you know it only happens when i'm climbing way over my head on something like the Ventoux, and yet it's so satisfying to get to the top um and and look over provence all of french provence is down there that's why they call it the giant of provence because you can see it forever for miles and miles and when you're finally at the top you can see to the alps and you can see down to the Rhone river it's just spectacular yeah you're still not selling it to me i'm afraid um uh, james you also have a piece looking back to the summer of uh, 2012 when um bradley wiggins took the tour de france and an olympic gold medal um it's 10 years ago now and it seems like a different world almost doesn't it yeah it was and as i said i i didn't quite get bradley i actually ran into him at the tour one night we had a couple times the same hotels and stuff and i was saying you know i wrote in my piece that you know, I, I didn't quite get you back in 2012. It took me a while to understand, to fathom and understand the significance of that victory. And and it was kind of like Pedro Delgado's victory uh, in the, uh, was it 1988 Tour de France, right? I mean, he only won one tour. And after that, Miguel Indurain won five. And yet the Spaniards remember Pedro because he was the first to, to crack the Tour de France nut after so many years. I mean, they had won it in what, 1960, I believe, or 59 with um, Bahamontes, but it had been decades. And then Bradley was obviously just the first uh, British rider to win it. And it was just so historical. And, and then, you know, he had 
has so much persona himself um, that it's, you know, people still talk about it and it was just really special. So I thought it was, it was uh, worthwhile. And, and, but that whole year, 2012 was magical. I mean, I was every race I went to that he was at, he won. I mean, I was there when he won Perry Nice. I was there on the Dauphiné. I think I missed what well, maybe one Roman D I think in there too. And I missed that. But other than that, I mean, he just showed up to a race and he won. It was a golden year. Everyone's talking about it, of course, except Bradley Wiggins, who has hardly mentioned it this year. I think he put a couple of pictures on his Instagram account. But other than that, he's let the anniversary go past without any mention, hasn't he? As, as a cyclist, he was very much kind of do the process, set the target, move on. Maybe he applies that to his life as well. I mean, I, I, my memories of the summer of 2012, are, yeah, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a unique time just a series of events that where everything fell into place and kind of built to this ultimate conclusion where suddenly after you know I'd, I'd, I'd been I started following cycling the in the mid 80s I think James followed it even you know even longer than that and as a, as a British cycling fan I remember the the the, the lean year when I when I first got into the sport uh, Robert Miller now Philip York was you know doing a doing doing well um, there were other other riders but generally especially through the 90s there just wasn't any British success through the 2000s there were some years we didn't even have it a single rider I think there was 2004 wasn't it where not a single um, British rider was on the start line at the Tour de France because um, I think Miller was suspended or um... yeah I, I, I think so there, 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 there were years when there were none and I, that, that's when I first started as a cycling journalist I probably probably didn't appreciate it at the time but I was probably lucky to be able to carve out a career because there just wasn't that much interest and the difference between that and 2012 where Wiggins was I, I think literally the most popular man in the UK and the most famous man in the UK you know the change between that and 20, uh, where it had been and where, where it was then was incredible and also you know, it does make me feel slightly melancholic as well because yeah. Time moves on. It's ten years ago. I was, I was, I was forty then, or knocking on forty then, knocking on fifty now. And I look back on the summer of twenty twelve from the perspective of twenty twenty two with a slightly different angle. Um, that you know, the, the the London Olympics were magical and amazing. At the same time, there was a. I think there's a sense now that you know that in retrospect there are a few a few doping positives or a lot of doping positives there. The legacy hasn't been what was promised. Like we, we still lose opportunities for kids to get into sport and for people to build a you know a lifelong interest in sports through infrastructure. You know, yes, winning gold medals is nice, but if I I, I believe now that if you if it doesn't feed through to the general population, being able to benefit from the wonderful impact that sport can have on your life, then it means nothing. And that legacy hasn't been followed up so well. You know, there are places where it has, but in general, it hasn't. And of course, there's with Wiggins himself, he went through some hard times as well. After uh, you know, at the end end of his end of his career, so it's it's a funny one. You know, we we look back on 2012. It was a magical year. At the same time, it's our responsibility ten years on to make sure we assess it honestly and to enjoy the good parts but also just make sure that everything that was promised at the time is followed through on well finally james um with your art historian or art experts hat on you also have a piece in uh, 113 about the artist fernand leger who uh, not a cyclist 
um, but um, someone who put bikes in his paintings. I actually got into bicycle racing when I was in grad school, getting a master's degree in art history. And so there's always been this sort of, for me, a link between, I just, you know, I was studying great art and watching great bike racing. And for me, they were two things of beauty and exception. And I've always been interested in any kind of links, direct or indirect between them. And this was a very direct one. And every time I was, for years, uh, every time I go to the, the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, where I live, it's a wonderful museum. It's one of my favorites still today, anywhere I go in the world. And because the rooms are big, they're well lit, and there's always, and there's just a stunning collection. And often they have this, this, uh, this painting by Leger hanging there. And it's, you know, it's, it's just a fabulous piece of, of modern art. And the bicycle is just front and center. And, and so I thought that um, I'd do a piece on art and the and, and cycling because cycling is art and 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 sometimes art actually ref, you know references the sport I love so I tried to bring that all together and um and I was uh, I love Leger I think he's a, a fun uh, inventive artist um, and eternally modern okay thanks James thanks Ed this is Ruler Conversations don't forget to go to ruler.cc and subscribe to the magazine. Everything we've talked about in issue 113, plus columns from Orla Shenoui and Ned Bolting. Ruler Conversations, we're talking about issue 113 of the magazine, the inspiration issue. One of the most inspiring of recent victories was Lizzie Dynion in the inaugural Women's Paris-Roubaix, not just because it was an exceptional bit of racing, but also because of what it meant to the wider women's peloton. Lizzie had taken leave to have a baby and come back winning. Ruler's Rachel Jarry has written about motherhood in bike racing for the inspiration issue. Um, Rachel, um, that was was an important race and an important victory for Lizzie, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was a moment that just really proved what is possible if you give women the support and opportunity to go away and have a child and, you know, give them the time to come back. And it just, she was kind of, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't the first um, rider to do it, but she was the first one to kind of do it on such a big scale. And Um, A lot of people said she was just kind of the perfect person to win that race because she was a mother and because of what it represented. And I think the fact it was Paris-Roubaix, which people have been saying for a long time, is like too difficult for the women's peloton as well. Also just added to the whole fact that, you know, she was she just proved so many people wrong. um, And it was a really big, important moment and inspired a lot of people and showed a lot of other riders what what is possible. And not, not just riders, women in general, people all over the world, kind of what what you can do as a mother and how it should be should doesn't ever need to be anything that kind of holds you back I remember hearing her talk I think in uh, ruler issue 101 the women's issue about how hard it had been you know to get get that acceptance that um, a lot of people seemed you know some of her teammates um, some of the other people in the team seemed a bit disappointed that she had said that she was pregnant and was, was planning to take maternity leave yeah I think she said like hardly anyone said congratulations to her when she announced her pregnancy and it was it's it's yeah it's pretty crazy I I think like she's now shown a lot of teams that you know she's given her team amazing publicity with that win and it's kind of like proved to like a lot of sponsors and teams like why wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that and it's like 
speaking to Eleanor Barker for that piece, she thinks that, um, you know, Lizzie winning one of the most iconic bike races in the world was played a massive part in helping teams like hers see that you should really support people um, support women who want to go and have children and you know it's been it was iconic what Lizzie did and it, it showed a lot of people what was possible and um, I think Lizzie said like the reaction to announcing her that she was pregnant for the second time was a lot more positive and that kind of sums up a big shift in attitudes and one that she's played a massive part in creating really. You spoke to Eleanor Barker and of course Eleanor uh, discovered that she was pregnant effectively during the Tokyo Olympics didn't she? Yeah she did the pregnancy test in Tokyo and it sounded like a really like crazy experience for her because she couldn't leave the athletes village because of Covid so she had to kind of speak to her team doctor and ask them to go and buy this pregnancy test for her and then she found out she was pregnant when she was there and she said she had the flight home to kind of think about what she was going to do and in that flight she realised like she's definitely not ready to stop racing and she started to think well like why what what does this mean um and she realized you know it doesn't need to mean the end of her career and she said the first people she actually spoke to about it were her team bosses at team uno x who she was supposed to be signing a contract for and she said they were just incredibly incredibly supportive and and you know watching lizzie's win as well was another thing that really inspired her and showed her that it didn't it doesn't need to mean the end of her career actually can open even more opportunities for her Yeah, she's full of praise for um, You Know X, her team, isn't she? And for how they responded. Do you think that is um, indicative of a sort of change in the wider women's peloton? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely to some extent it is. And I think at the top level uh, teams, there's obviously a maternity clause now in contracts that says um, riders have to be paid if um, during their maternity leave, which is great. Um, obviously, that does still only impact the kind of top tier teams. Um, so it's not it's not kind of across the whole board of um, women's cycling. And I'm sure there are some smaller teams out there who probably wouldn't wouldn't support like riders who need to go on maternity leave, and it might be more difficult for them. And that's what Barker was really trying to kind of hammer home to me in that interview. Was like. She doesn't want to come across as like, yeah, look, everyone can do this. It's really easy. It's it's only because she was lucky to have the support of that team. And she said if she was watching Lizzie win Paris Bay and she'd had her contract revoked because she was pregnant, she would have had very different feelings about the whole thing. So it's good to see the progress, but I think it's not like time to sort of rest on the laurels and think of oh, we've kind of you know it's just, it's it's sorted now because it's only on those top level teams who have the budget to do it um where riders are getting that kind of support but i think obviously as the sport grows gets more investment and more money more and more teams will give their athletes those that support which which hopefully can come quickly yeah, and both uh, lizzie and eleanor uh, sort of at pains to point out that they were able to do it because they had support systems in place partners families etc um, who could help them, uh, which won't always be the case, will it? No, definitely not. Um, yeah, like it's it's only the teams with the big budgets who who can do that. And um, like they were both saying, like having their like parents, their husbands to look after their children is really a massive help. And being able to, but was saying, kind of having that um, full pay during her maternity leave just made things so much easier because they were able to sort of pick the flights that they wanted to get to her training camps and stuff that were, you know, convenient. They weren't kind of trying to skimp on getting the cheapest flights or if they had to pay for an extra day of childcare, they could afford that because they'd been given this like 
extra financial help from the team and um yeah that that's why she was able to do it and she's kind of very aware that not everyone has that privilege and there's still work to be done okay thanks rachel and that's it from this ruler conversations do go to ruler.cc and subscribe to get issue 113 and a year's worth of the best cycling journalism in the world we'll catch up soon Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.